You're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. And this is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. A question posed for our listeners. How do we prepare and respond to large-scale medical crises that haven't even been considered, much less experienced, before? A modern specialized field called emergency preparedness aims to provide some practical approaches towards this potentiality. Speaking with me today on this subject is Dr. Frank Peacock. Dr. Peacock is chairman of emergency preparedness at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. He's also the medical director of event medicine, as well as vice chief of research in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Peacock, welcome to our program. To start, it's pretty clear from your background that you have some interesting and really unique roles within the setting of emergency medicine. So forgive me for throwing you this kind of broad question to start off, but can you tell us a little more about the role and job description of being chairman for this emergency preparedness? Well, that's a big bite in one word there. <laughs> emergency preparedness, we used to call this disaster committees, and we've changed that now because it's not really just disasters we're worried about. It's the whole aspect of keeping the institution functioning in situations that could potentially prevent that. You know, I always reckon this back to September 11th, and before September 11th, I did disaster planning. And that was two guys in the basement looking for a cup of coffee so that we could check off a box with the Joint Commission that we did this. It wasn't taken very seriously. Nobody was really concerned about it. Post-September 11th, life changed for everybody. This became a real job with real stressors, and now we have real planning that goes on. There's been a complete frame shift. So emergency preparedness is being everything to every situation. So it never really quite ends. It is trying to make sure that when the next hurricane or earthquake or even a power outage occurs, the institution continues to provide services to the local community. And, you know, that is something that uh, we've experienced. People think Cleveland hasn't had much. We had the power outage. And let me tell you, if you think that uh, you're prepared, turn off your electricity and you find out all sorts of rude things about your institution which was the best practice we have ever had, and we were able to identify a number of problems that we fixed. But we didn't think we had. We thought we had dealt with this five years prior. So as the chairman of emergency preparedness, I'm curious about what parts or aspects of the medical institution you draw the most resources and expertise from. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, this really is depending on what are you thinking the problem is today. And we've been doing this long enough. We've seen the cycles come and go. Um, immediately post-September 11th, we all worried about terrorism. And how could we not be the subject of a terrorism attack? I mean, hospitals think they're protected, but the reality is, is most hospitals have VIPs in them. So there are security issues you deal with today that have to be concerned. So in that situation, you're dealing with the security guys. We're dealing with the FBI. You know, smaller hospitals may deal with the local police, but you have to deal with that security issue. If you're talking avian influenza, which is really topical right now, you're dealing with surge capacity, and what are you going to do with 20,000 extra people showing up at your hospital who want a vaccine that doesn't exist and a cure that we can't provide, as well as all the resource issues associated with being overwhelmed? You know, how do you get food to the hospital? How do you get power and light? If you want to pick a different issue, you know, if you're on the Gulf Coast, you're worried about hurricanes and how do you deal with those issues? So who you deal with becomes a subject of what we call risk analysis, and every hospital has a different risk platform. I'm the Cleveland Clinic. I'm in Ohio. I don't have the same issues as San Francisco General because we don't have a whole lot of earthquakes here. But in our risk analysis, we have a large industrial base around the corner that if they have a fire could potentially close down my hospital because of the gas plume. Every hospital does a risk analysis of the region they're in and makes a reasonable assessment of what they need to prepare for, and then that's what they have to fix, those issues. When you talk emergency preparedness, you can talk literally for hours, because, and it gets more and more arcane. 
So you have to at some point say, these are the reasonable things we would prepare for. We are not going to prepare for a meteor strike. But at some point, you have to have amount of resources to match what your risk assessment is. So then that's the next piece is the resource analysis. That is also unique for every hospital. I interface with the Ohio Department of Health in regards to bird flu issues, in regards to infrastructure providing to national security and national disasters. Uh, we actually practice that stuff. We're an uh, NDMS. It's a National Disaster Management System Hospital, which means that if there is an event in Chicago, we become the site for that. They would then transfer victims of whatever happened in Chicago to us. And so that our risk analysis and resource analysis is not just on the local scene, but it is a regional scene that you have to take perspective of. And so once you've sort of structured your risk analysis and your resource analysis, then you've done all your interfaces, and I probably should talk about interfaces are critical in this situation. They start at the local level, the hospital you share resources with down the corner to the one that's 50 miles away to the national and international resources. And so all those things have to be planned. They will not work if you haven't planned them. So all this stuff works out ahead of time. The advantages of interfacing in a network is you also have budgetary advantages. You know, the Ohio Department of Health will do influenza testing. They did anthrax testing during the anthrax letter scare. So there are ways that you make all that network work. But the important piece here is you sit down, you do a rational analysis of your resources and your risk, and you make intended plans ahead of time that then can augment the ability to respond. Now, taking a slightly wider perspective here, what would you say is the typical role for the physicians in your institution, or any community center for that matter, in planning for emergency preparedness? The physician has a huge role to play beforehand. They have to provide the clinical insight and what the goal of any specific disaster is. It's to deal with all these burn victims or to deal with all this, the people who have the flu or whatever it is. The doc has to provide the clinical insight of what we do. Is it rational? Does it make sense from a medical point of view? During the disaster, the doc is no longer chief planner. He becomes the chief care provider. And we have very frequent and intensive practices at the clinic. And the one thing that we have learned is that if you think the doc's an administrator during a disaster, that's just not going to happen. The doc is one of the few people that can get out there and say, you're not sick, you can leave. You are sick. We have four hospital beds left, and you get one of them. And so that is something that you have to plan for. Your best docs need to be in the front lines during an emergency situation, not in an office with a tie on. That really changes how you respond, and you don't find that out until you practice it. And we do, like I said, we do extensive practicing. We have a command and control center that looks like something out of NASA. We have two of them. They're in secret locations. They have the ability to interface with up to 40 electronic inputs simultaneously, television stations, satellite feeds, radio, all that sort of thing. And we put our administrative end in that room in any of these scenarios and practice how to respond. We just completed an avian influenza response plan about two weeks ago. And what the one thing that comes out of that is you should see the looks on these people when they walk out of the room because if, you know, things happen that you had no idea uh, were going to be an issue. In our last influenza outbreak plan, we planned for something on the order of 20,000 people with the flu in the Cleveland metro area. Well, not only does that overwhelm you, but that also steals your resources because the guy who drives the truck that delivered the food to the cafeteria didn't show up today because he was sick. A third of your nurses didn't show up because they had sick kids at home. They weren't sick themselves. So you don't find this stuff out till you plan it and try it out. That's a great analogy, I think. It's sort of a tom-thumb approach to an otherwise pretty intimidating task of emergency planning. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. 
This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Dr. Frank Peacock, who's chairman of Emergency Preparedness at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. We're talking today about emergency preparedness as an evolving specialized field in medical institutions today. Let's talk some more about dealing with the unexpected. How do you, as someone overseeing a department responding to totally unanticipated and frankly disastrous events, uh, manage to handle and coordinate these responses? I, I think what you have to assume, first off, is they call it a disaster for a reason. And disaster means that you're going to have to to handle something that overwhelms your resources. And so medical practice does change in that situation. It's not like it always is. We most recently have been considering bird flu, and when you put that in perspective, normally we put sick people in the hospital, but when you have 20,000 people, we only have 1,000 beds. We can't hospitalize them all. And so actually in that situation, you send sick people home to their house. You don't consider that we're responsible for dealing with all the bodies, but where do they end up? They all come to the hospital because that's where family members bring them. And so we have planned for that situation with refrigerated trucks in the parking lot to store the, the consequences until we can get that taken care of. I mean, when you start running these numbers, they really are fairly astounding. Hold on, let me just back up for a second here, because I think this definitely needs another run-through. Did you just mention that you have refrigerated trucks acting as de facto morgues? Yeah. When you, when you figure out, we've run models for it. Now, I don't want to get caught in an avian flu, because I think that's somewhat hyped up and a little bit overblown lately. But if you run models on a 1918 pandemic of anything, it doesn't have to be flu, it could be anything that pops up, and you want to respond to that, well, it quickly overwhelms the current system. Um, We don't have, as a nation, very effective surge capacity. All you have to do is look at what happens every hospital in the United States in February when we have our regular flu season, which is not a lot of patients in the bigger scope of things, and it taxes the hospital. All the hospitals are full. We take rotating closure where you have to bypass ERs. I mean, ER overcrowding is the real deal, and it's not ERs aren't overcrowded because they're not able to do the job. That it's the hospital behind them is completely full. That there aren't any beds left, and what do you do? You house people in hallways and ERs. Well, that happens every February. So imagine that we increase the number of people coming to the hospital by a factor of a thousand percent. The consequences are somewhat daunting, and so we plan for that and have tried to work out those deals. As I was saying, we have pretty good surge capacity in a military point of view. We mothball battleships that we can get out and use if we have to. We don't have a strategy in the country for that. Um, what we've been doing locally is doing inventories of our resources, of all our clinics, and have planned on turning some of them into secondary hospitals because we have a lot of office space that is not like regular offices. It has oxygen and water in it. So we could then co-opt those into uh, emergency hospital space, if you will. But even that, when you count every available bed, we are not, as a country, prepared for a pandemic. We would have very significant difficulty, just enough beds for sick people. So the Cleveland Clinic is obviously acting decisively on a regional level to coordinate emergency preparedness. But what else are you doing on the national level to help prepare the country for more extensive emergency situations? Well, we've had higher-level contacts with Homeland Security and Health and Human Services and those type of resources to have a dialogue with where the hospital system is and where we think we need to be versus where the regulatory and funding agencies are and think we need to be. There is a, uh, a sort of a lag here. Uh, you know, as we talked in the first segment, September 11th really was the day that this all became born, and we realized that it is a real issue, and we'd better be prepared. And we've seen what has happened with Katrina, and that wasn't optimally handled. I think that, once again, has been a wake-up call, and people take it a lot more seriously than we are. 
working diligently to build interfaces um, at the national level with the government and with the emergency preparedness agencies. We've standardized, and, and to a large part, the government helped do this. We've standardized the interface with this. It's called the HIKE system. It's Hospital Emergency Incident Command System so that all hospitals then can talk in the same language to one another in a disaster, that we can communicate that you know, on the other side of town there's a hospital that's got some empty beds and we've got casualties, we can swap patients around. We can then interface with the uh, emergency preparedness system, which has the same incident command type of structure. So we've somewhat standardized our response to external emergencies. Well, I want to thank Dr. Frank Peacock, Chairman of Emergency Preparedness at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening.